We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your guest host, Ross Darrell Feingold. I'm joined in the studio this evening by lawyer and former head of the legal department for the Taipei City Government, Ye Ching Yuan. Ching Yuan, welcome to Taiwan This Week. Hi, how are you? And Carl Wagner, head of Asia for R3, an enterprise blockchain software firm. Carl, welcome back to ICRT. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing new legal restrictions on former government officials' overseas travel. The U.S. House of Representatives passes resolutions and bills to support Taiwan. The latest in the marriage equality debate, the status of the regulatory sandbox, and why Clifford the Big Red Dog appeared recently in Tainan. But we'll begin with candidate for the KMD presidential nomination, Terry Goh, who returned to Taiwan earlier this week from a short visit to the United States, where he met with President Trump and offered assurances that Foxconn Honhai's Wisconsin project will achieve its employment targets. Goh's visit attracted much attention in Taiwan, especially with regards to his statements about Taiwan's status and how China should view it. So, Ching Yuan, was his trip about his factory in Wisconsin or was it about KMT presidential politics? I think everybody knows that it's really for his presidency. And as you can see, that is, you know, nobody goes to White House wearing a hat with the national flags of Taiwan, right? So it's obviously, you know, he's there to get a support or backup from the from Trump. And I think he somehow gets it. You know, of course, the U.S. president wouldn't say that I will support Terry Guo because that would be an interference with the internal affairs of another country. But you see that by allowing him to go into White House and, you know, and talk to him, knowing that he's running for president, that sends a lot of messages. Yeah. Carl, there was a bit of a controversy here in Taiwan because of what Go said, that message at China, that China, you should recognize the ROC's existence. Uh, people, I think, were a bit confused whether he was advocating Taiwan independence, which is how some of the English language media report it, or was he just repeating a standard KMT kind of view on Taiwan status. What do you think the view from China would be on what he said? Well, again, anything that that he says, anything a a, a potential uh, you know candidate would would say about China and, and Taiwan's independence, obviously, is is, is very sensitive. Um, I think it's it's very interesting. I mean, Go is is a very interesting candidate. Not only is another businessman that wants to be a that wants to go into politics. I mean, he's a very successful businessman. So, so he, and he's managed uh, to be successful in China. He's got, you know, probably close to a million employees in China, and, and so his relationships there are, are good as well. So, it's very interesting to see how he's going to play this out and how how China wants to work with him, you know, as a potential uh, political candidate as well as a businessman. Well, you, you meet with a lot of companies and, and government officials in, in China. Are, are they talking about him? Because they know who he is, as opposed to maybe not being familiar with other presidential candidates in Taiwan. Uh, he's well known in China. Or do they ask you questions about him? Or are they excited about his candidacy? Or do they don't even, or they maybe don't even care? So far, I haven't heard, no one's really talked about it much. Maybe I just haven't been uh, talking to the right people in, in, in China recently. But uh, I, I think, you know, in, in other places, I've you know, heard people talking about it. And again, he gets a lot more press internationally because of Foxconn, because of the Wisconsin factory. So it, it does put Taiwan more on the international stage, you know, for the presidential election. So speaking of the international aspect of this, uh, Ching Yuan, you mentioned the hat with the, the ROC flag and, and the U.S. flag. Uh, so what should we read into that from a, a Taiwan perspective? Uh, one, he wore it. 
in the United States into the White House. But but he was showing it prominently to the audience here in Taiwan, right? He made sure to show it to the Taiwan media so that audience voters here in Taiwan. What, what is he trying to achieve with that? I think first he's trying to tell people that uh, Taiwan or ROC, Republic of China, is a name that we should continue to support. And also I think his standpoint is that you know, we can, it's really the traditional Kuomintang policy that the cross-strait relationship can be maintained as long as we do not declare independence. And by using the name Republic of China, the two sides, uh, Republic of China and People's Republic of China can coexist in harmony, uh, but not in confrontation. So I, I think he's really trying to tell people that, hey, we can follow this path and we will be fine instead of, you know, keep provoking China and make the economy worse and worse. And what do you make of the reaction from the leading DPP candidates uh, for their nomination, Tsai Ing-wen, the incumbent president, and former Premier William Lai ching How do you assess their reaction to Goh's U.S. trip and the statements he made about Taiwan status? I think you can see lots of reactions from the internet and from DPPs that, okay, uh, they're trying to be China again. You know, we're Taiwan, they're China. So Kuomintang, by saying that, you know, Zhou Er Gong the 92 consensus is really one China policy. So we are not China. We're not Chinese. So it really goes back to the old confrontation model. Uh, I think that works for their, you know, hardcore supporters. But I think really for the next year election is about the in the, about the middle. You know, the, the, whether we can have a proper living, whether we can have a better life. So I don't think their support will will win the heart of the middle class. Yeah. Carl, I'm not going to let you off the hook. When it comes to primary questions, because the key debate on the DPP side recently has been whether to use landlines or mobile phones. And I know you know a little <laughs> bit about software, uh, because that's your, your in, the industry you're in. So, so maybe you could walk us through that debate. What, what, what's landlines versus mobile phones, or what, what, why should we have a mix of, of the two when trying to contact voters in Taiwan? Well, I think, that, I mean, the, the, the fact is that... Uh, you know, Taiwan started out in, in as more traditionally with landlines and, and mobile phones are, you know, some place like China, which went straight to mobile phones. You know, I remember doing a informal poll about in, in when I was working in China about three, four years ago. And I asked how many of my staff actually had a landline and it was zero. Right. No one had a landline. They all use mobile phones. Right. And in Taiwan, we still have, you know, a lot of people using mobile phones. We have a lot of people that, you know, and you have elderly, elderly voters who, who are not great using maybe their mobile phones. They want to use landlines. So I think that, you know, having you, this is still a society that, that has a, a, a mix of both and, and focusing on one or the other probably doesn't make sense. So it is an interesting, uh, we are moving to that in, you know, five, 10 years from now. Um, you know, and even even now, mobile phones are most of the communications are not even done on on mobile phone lines. It's actually on internet. You know, whether Line or or you know WeChat or or WhatsApp. Actually, so actually, you know, how much you actually communicate. You, you know, how many people actually talk on the phone nowadays? Right? It's so much less than before. So actually, it's it's probably more important about you know all the communications that are done, the the text and and uh, you know social media communications are are probably actually more powerful than actually you know landlines or or you know people talking anymore. It's, so it sounds like 
uh, both parties in Taiwan need to move on from traditional ways of conducting polling uh, when they're trying to do a primary to select a presidential candidate. But speaking of moving on, but not moving from Taiwan will be former government officials who handled certain types of classified information after a legal revision this week, increased the travel restriction for former government officials to up to six years from a previous three-year restriction. The KMT says it's directed at former President Ma because his three-year restriction is about to expire. Though comments from DPP legislators indicated that this legal revision was also targeted at local government officials. Ching Yuan, you worked in the Taipei city government. What kind of classified information do local government officials have? None. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 and you're also a lawyer, Ching. So, walk us through the, this this legal change to extend the the travel restriction from three to six years. You know, actually, for local government officials, the the, the law says that we are also subject to the three year rule. But it can be shortened to three months. Yeah, so before, I think before I was discharged from the government, they already filed the application, or right after. Then, so that the, the, the period was shortened to three months. Because actually, you know, as a government, local government official, we actually possess or access no confidential information at all. I can understand that for prime ministers and for president, you need a longer time, which is three years. But be frank, to be frank, after three years leaving the post, do they still have any sensitive information? I don't think so. So to me, I think this rever- this amendment is really to block Ma Yingzhou and Wu Duanyi from visiting China. But you know, in a sense, I think Wu Duanyi might be happy about this. You know, because in Taiwan, whenever the government is doing something to make you bad and people sympathize you, then your poll goes up. <laughs> so, so I think it's very ironic. But of course, when we see Ma Yingzhou and Wu Duanyi do not have the chance to visit China and to, to smooth the situation across the Taiwan Strait, I think that's a loss to everybody here. Yeah. So is there any way to challenge this law now that it's been passed by the legislative? Uh, is there a constitutional challenge on a personal a person's yes, travel? But, but I think the, the flaw of Taiwan's constitution is that once you win the presidency and also the majority of the Congress, each president has a chance to, to nominate half of the grand justices, justice to the constitutional court. And when, to make a law unconstitutional, you need two-thirds of the justices. So in short, it's impossible because Tsai Ing-wen has nominated eight among the 15. So theoretically, it's impossible to have the grand justices coming out and say this law is unconstitutional. So, so, so that's the problem of Taiwan's constitution. Carl, from the business world perspective, and I, I share some of your experiences working in financial institutions, we, we deal with confidential information all, uh, all the time. We deal with employees leaving and the risk that they'll walk out with algorithms or customer lists. How do we protect these things in 2019 other than restricting travel that Taiwan has now done for former government officials? Yeah, no, it, and that's a good point is that, you know, how much someone can say and, and talk about and how much they know is, is one thing. But the amount of data that's out there, right, that someone could take a USB from the company with incredible um, amount of data. And we talk about Snowden, WikiLeaks and that sort of thing like that. An incredible amount of data can be taken, which is probably a lot more damaging or, or, or a lot more dangerous than someone verbally talking about things. Um, uh, I mean, again, most, most companies nowadays, uh, they 
at least financial institutions, you can't even use your USB. The USB doesn't even work on your computer anymore because they're afraid of people downloading anything. Uh, as a, I work in a tech company now, and of course, our computer, we can do whatever we want with the computer. We do have privileged information, and, and you can manage it different ways. You can manage by seeing who downloads what at what time. You can track it in, in other ways. And, and actually, that's probably a, 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 probably a higher concern um, you know, because the amount, of the, the amount of valuable information that can be transferred, you know, so much, it's just so much more, so much quicker, and actually not that hard to do. And so, Ching Yuan, why, why weren't some of the uh, people who worked in the former government, the Mind Joe government, who seemed to be the target of this <laughs> restriction, why weren't they saying, uh, not only is the information I know old, but I'm not tech savvy anyway, so it's impossible for me to have downloaded any information? Because some of these, these older folks, they don't look so tech savvy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think the whole thing is really ironic. I remember when Mind Joe was president, the deputy chairperson of the mainland Council, yeah, he was caught like by using his staff passing confidential information to mainland China. Then at that time, DPP was supporting him, saying that you know it's a political persecution. Yeah, so this is totally fine. And eventually, he was acquitted. Now they're saying that because you have the potentiality to to send things to mainland China, so we're going to expand the ban. So it's ridiculous. If he really possess anything like in a hard drive. He would have already done that by a middle person, right? He doesn't really need the actual visit. So I think the whole thing is just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that note, uh, we'll, we'll move on from interactions with the Chinese government to interactions with the U.S. government. This week, the House of Representatives passed a law called the Taiwan Assurance Act of 2019, as well as a resolution affirming the U.S. commitment to Taiwan and the implementation of the Taiwan Relations Act. The Taiwan Assurance Act, not to be confused with the Taiwan Relations Act, <laughs> says the U.S. should conduct regular sales and transfers of defense articles to Taiwan. And it says that it's U.S. policy to advocate for the nation's meaningful participation in international bodies as appropriate, while the resolution, separate from the Taiwan Assurance Act, reiterates that the U.S. president should conduct regular transfers of defense articles and says that the Secretary of State should actively engage internationally in support of Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations. Ching Yuan, I hear a lot of shoulds and advocates, but I don't hear a lot of musts. Mm -hmm. Is this all a public relations exercise? I think so. And, uh, you know, I actually teach this U.S. Kong law at Suzhou University in Taiwan. I th you know, it's really, uh, a when you talk about foreign policy, when you talk about diplomacy, it's really something belongs to the executive branch. You know, the Congress, they can make law, but they cannot really interfere. The execution matters. So you can tell that, you know, the, the, the whole act is about we hope, the, the Congress hope that the, the, the government should do this and that. But it's really up to the Department of State, the executive branch, to make the decision. So in the end, it doesn't do Taiwan any good. But it looks good to us that, oh, Taiwan and America seems to be better. But does that, does that benefit Taiwan in any substantive way? I do not, do not think so. I can, uh, for, for example, WHA is for the third year that we do not get an invitation. Yeah, if Taiwan Assurance Act is really that helpful, we should be in the assembly now, right? But we are not invited again. So I, I think the key issue for Taiwan's participation in international activities is 
not to provoke uh, China, but really to make peace with both U.S. and and China, saying that we will be a respons- responsible stakeholder and we will make the regional peace so that everybody can do business happily. But you know, not really like okay, I'm going to sub- uh, depending on the U.S. to fight China for me. I don't think that will work. Yeah, Carl, you have experience interacting with U.S. government officials on, on Taiwan issues. Uh, you, wh- why, why are they doing these things, and why are they doing it this time? Is it, is it to help Tsai Ing-wen's re-election? Is it because China is just a nasty person or a nasty country towards Taiwan? Uh, so, wh- what is their motivation to pass these these laws? And uh, well, assuming that it passed the Senate and is signed by the president, as well as this resolution, which is just a resolution, not a law. Uh, but but as Chin Yuan said. It's filled with musts and shoulds and, and ultimately the authorities with the executive branch. So why is Congress doing this? I think it's – I think it – I didn't mention it's, it's probably sort of an anti-China uh, rhetoric. Um, I think it's, it's – the, the fact is that it's, it's not a – there's musts and shoulds and, and, in, and how much will be done you know, is to, remains to be seen. I still think it see it as a positive thing for Taiwan, right? Because I mean, the fact that they're reiterating this again, they're talking about it in a diff, you know slightly different way, you know, does is is good for Taiwan to show the the American support, and I think it's you know for for. Taiwan, it's 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 uh, obviously positive, and you know, you spend a lot of time in the uh, American Chamber of Commerce, and you know, it helps helps if if you're trying to get some investment in Taiwan. If your your boss in in the U.S. sees this on the news, then maybe yeah, maybe an investment in Taiwan seems more positive, right? Because there's a closer linkage. Um, if you see, and I think that it's. Also for the U.S., I mean, the fact that this is brought up in the press in the U.S. actually brings more people in the U.S. to understand where Taiwan is and Taiwan's situation, right? Because most people still, you know, have that problem. And, and you know, I've been out here for for 30 years and, and still when I go back to the States, they say, you live in Taiwan. That's really great. I think Koh Samui is a really nice beach, right? They get they get confused between Thailand and Taiwan all the time. So I think that, you know, having a, a little bit of press on, on, on Taiwan for the U.S., you know, public is, is, is good for Taiwan overall. But where do we draw the line from the perspective of uh, there, there's other proposed Taiwan-related legislation, not just resolutions. There's one uh, proposal that would penalize the remaining countries that have formal diplomatic relations. If they break those relations with Taiwan, they would get U.S. penalties, for example, a reduction in aid. I mean, how much leg- U.S. legislation for Taiwan is too much? Well, I think something like that is 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 definitely that's a little too much, right? I mean, the fact is that every country should decide who they want to have diplomatic relations with, and it shouldn't be uh, prescribed by another country. That's not that's that's really uh, maybe a little bit out of bounds. But uh, again, it's 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 a it's that balancing act, and um, as as you mentioned, between. Taiwan, China, and and the U.S. Um, and it's a delicate balance that that always needs to be maintained, right? And and sort of ebbs and flows too, right? And with this new administration, the U.S. you know it, it's it's ebbed and flowed in in different ways, and and uh, you know we'll have to see see where it goes. But I think between you know the 
trade war as well, right? I mean, there's the the uh, the, the challenge between the U.S. and and China um, are also uh, you know things are coming up to a, a, a stronger conflict, and hopefully that gets worked out as well. So I think again, it's that 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 three that three party relationship with Taiwan sort of in the middle, um, you know, is, is always going to be a challenge. Ching Yuan, uh, before we leave this segment, are, are we going to hear the DPP candidate, whether it's uh, Lai Qingde or Tsai Gwen, saying, I brought you the Taiwan Assurance Act, or our party did? Or is it going to be something that voters care about here in Taiwan? I believe they will do that. I think, uh, you know, when the TRA's 40th anniversary, right, and you see that uh, the Assistant Deputy Secretary of the State, mm-hmm. Department of State, came to Taiwan and to meet with Chai, Tsai Ing-wen. So Tsai Ing-wen was saying, oh, you know, it's really the best time for Taiwan and American relationship. And now we are even, I, so I assume that they're going to say that, see, we are bringing another important milestone that we're having this Taiwan Assurance Act. So I think that would be her way to make flying the out of the race. Yeah, by, you know, explain, postponing the uh, primary election uh, within the party, then, you know, try to get as much as, you know, positive result of her legacy, yeah, so that she can prevail in the primary. Yeah. We have to take a short break now, but we'll be back after these commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. With the May 24th deadline to satisfy the constitutional court requirement to create a legislative framework for marriage equality, the legislative UN has yet to pass a solution. Among the three proposed laws under discussion, a relatively new proposal by the DPP legislator Lin Dai-hua uses the term same-sex unions, not marriage, and authorizes prosecutors or social welfare agencies to request that a court intervene and abrogate a same-sex union if relatives of either member of the union believe that it was not for the purpose of two people living life together. So, Ching Yuan, let's let's not get into what our personal views on on marriage equality are, but uh, you being, again, a lawyer, and you mentioned the constitutional court earlier, this concept of going to a, a relative, going to a court and saying, judge, I want to abrogate, I want to dissolve the same-sex union of my child. Is that constitutional? Of course not. You know, as the uh, as the Grand Justice said in the interpretation number 748, it said the marriage equality is guaranteed by Taiwan's constitution. So by saying equality, you cannot saying that for the same-sex marriage, there will be a challenge clause by a relative while there's no such clause for regular marriage. So the, 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 the clause itself is a discrimination. So it will be ruled unconstitutional if it is uh, – it will be ruled unconstitutional if it is challenged in court. Yeah. Why is this taking so long? So if we go back in the history, the Constitutional Court ruled two years ago. They said, legislators, you have two years. Otherwise, if you don't do anything – same-sex uh, couples can just register under existing laws, the civil law. Then there was the referendums, which, if we're going to follow the referendum result, says we want a separate law, not uh, yes. marriage equality under the existing civil civil code. Why is this taking so long? The, the DPP has a majority in the legislative UN. They could pass whatever legislative they want. The, the president in the past 
before she became president, <laughs> was an advocate or a supporter for marriage equality. Why are we going up right up to the deadline? Yeah, uh, I think you can tell from the past two years that the hardcore DPP supporters in the South. They were really against this Marriage Equality Act. But the P in DPP stands for progressive. Yeah, but you know, there's always different group of supporters within your party, right? They, 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 on the outside, when Tsai Ing-wen was saying that, you know, once I'm elected, I will make marriage equal for everyone. That's my commitment. But once she was elected, then, you know, the, 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 priest, uh, the preachers yeah, in the South, they stand out and say, if you do that, then we're going to... You know, we will never vote for you again. So that's really the dilemma of the DPP legislators because they still need the local supporters, the grassroots supporters, so that they can be reelected again. And, you know, in the past, we have this feeling that most people support marriage equality. And, you know, it's really the common belief of the, the, the most people. But then when you have the referendum, it shows the other way. It shows that most people doesn't want it. So Ming Jingdang, DPP, was caught in the middle. They were panic, right? So, so I think the you know, if they really follow Tsai Ing-wen's commitment, it should be a gay marriage act, or like just amend the civil code to say that you know, gay marriage is also protected. Period. But now this act is not called gay marriage act; it's called Interpretation <laughs> Seven Forty Eight Implementary Act. It's really. Ridiculous, right? Well, that's why... Uh, <laughs> really rolls off the tongue, doesn't yeah, well, it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. This is exactly why uh, marriage equality advocates don't like this legislative framework, because it's in, it's, it appears to be inherently discriminatory because of the names, and uh, certain articles say the couple referred to it article yes. one, but, instead of saying the, the, the couple or, or the married couple. It also, it does not, like, a marriage relationship, it doesn't say apply to the... It says, the 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 gay uh, civil reunion a civil union the civil union of gay couples they may use the laws for the regular marriage so it implies that it's not regular marriage so so th- this law itself is actually discriminatory yeah mm. Carl, uh, Ching Yuan just mentioned that, that there was a perception that people in Taiwan were in favor of this, including the president, and then there was a referendum that showed otherwise. What, what's the international business community view? Because usually uh, multinational companies nowadays are very supportive of marriage equality and giving benefits to same-sex couples uh, among their employees. You know, it, it's interesting. I think from a and, – and it, it, it did go back, right? I mean, we, we thought that, you know, Taiwan overall overwhelming was, was, was positive for this. Um, it shows a little bit the the disparity, I guess, sometimes between you know the big city and and, and the country, the north and the south, maybe a little bit. Um, but uh, I, I think for for international companies, they probably saw this as as a, a very positive uh, a, a positive point to Taiwan. Um, I don't think that uh, companies will will. I mean, invest in Taiwan or or something like that for just for that reason. I think that, you know, if there was, you know, anti the other way, very draconian the other way, then yes, they may not they they may not be allowed by their shareholders to invest in a country that was very anti-gay. But um, uh, but I think, you know, it is a general positive trend. I think the international companies are 
you see them they've been supporting it all along right they see the see the news and they've been supporting it so again it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, dynamic here where we see that you know we thought it was it was a sort of a slam dunk right and and it's turned out that um there there are different opinions and um and we'll see i guess that the the timing is 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 coming up to the the last wire here yeah, we were talking about dynamics with the U.S. government in the earlier segment. How is this going to work with the U.S. government, which is a bit conservative and you know, is filled with very, very conservative <laughs> Republicans uh, who, who uh, don't have a, a strong supportive view of marriage equality? How is this going to be a selling point for the Taiwan government once they do have legislation? That that's an that's an interesting point as well, right? I mean, will will the the U.S. government want to, or the 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 Republican Party want to opine on that? That that could be a that could be a very interesting point. Whether it's 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 worth it to to opine on that, or just uh, just uh, not pay attention to it. It might be safer just just to let it go. I'm sure that some some folks will 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 still make you know if it, it you know if it passes, they they will make a point of it, but. I don't think it's it's going to really change the the Taiwan U.S. dynamic. I think Taiwan U.S. dynamic has you know and 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 with China has uh, uh, a lot a lot bigger things to 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 to, uh, to to manage. Although we should keep in mind there's a candidate running in the Democrat primary who is That's gay right. and who's married. So well, if, if, if <laughs> he that, that would be, yeah, that <laughs> could certainly change the relationship between the Taiwan <laughs> and the United States. Chinyuan, before we move on from this segment, very quickly, do you have a prediction how it's going to play out in the legislative UN, but what the final legislation will look like? I think we would just say that, you know, the, the same-sex marriage will be legal under the name of civil union or something similar. And then I, I don't think uh, the legislation, you, the clause you talk about, the challenge clause, I do not think it will be passed in the law. Yeah. Okay. So moving on from forming families to a place where families sometimes play, the sandbox. But in this case, the sandbox is not a sandbox in the park. It's a regulatory device that the Financial Supervisory Commission has based on legislation passed in 2017 that allows companies to offer financial products and services that otherwise would not be legal. This week, the chairman of the Financial Supervisory Commission, Wellington Guli Seung, claimed that the sandbox is a success with the Financial Supervisory Commission reaching its goal of 10 companies playing inside already. By comparison, this week, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority issued four virtual bank licenses, which is the second set of four licenses already issued this year. So is Chairman Ku correct and the sandbox is a success, Ching Yuan? You know, one year for like 10 projects, actually 11, one was rejected. I don't really think it's a success. You know, the benchmark is so low that it makes it easy to achieve. Yeah, I, I talked to business people and they were like, we are very suspicious because once we go to, we approach FFC and it's like they want you to go into the sandbox. But if we're legal anyway, why do we want to go into the sandbox and reveal all our trade secrets, right? How we do business. It really makes people easy to understand the way we do business. So, and But, you know, on the other hand, FSC want more people to go in so that they can achieve the 10-company goal. So, so I would say that in... After all, it's a success, but the benchmark is really low. Yeah. This kind of reminds me when, when there's a, a crime in Taiwan and a mayor says to the police, solve the crime within three hours or three <laughs> days. It, it's magically solved. So, so Carl, from the, from the industry perspective, the Taiwan sandbox, is it a success that the chairman of the FSC claims? 
I would say, I mean, sandboxes, and, and we work with a lot of uh, the the central banks in, in a lot of the Asian countries. I mean, if you're looking at and looking at specific and sort of blockchain and, and, and some of these uh, you know, central bank digital currencies and, and some of these new regulations, I mean, a sandbox is a nice to have, but I haven't seen a lot of real innovation come through sandboxes. Right, They're, the innovation comes from from different areas. The sandbox is, is 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 it's 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 good to have, and I think maybe it's a first step, but that shouldn't be the the final step. And that doesn't you know just having a sandbox and having so many uh, applications of sandbox, that's just the the, the beginning, yeah. right? And I think there's a lot more to to be done um, for the the the. FSC and central bank to to understand what's going on in, in other countries and I know they 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 do pay attention to the reports that are coming out from the other countries on 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 some of the the new regulations and stuff like that but it's it's just a beginning so a sandbox is good um, whether ten is a success or not it's just a piece of the of the puzzle this the first step yeah. sorry yeah and also I think you know it's like ten eleven applications one rejected and the one passed. You know, they claim it's a success, but it's really hardly a success. It's only one was passed. Yeah. Mm. So is, if you give us a perspective, where does Taiwan stand compared to some of the other markets? I just mentioned that uh, Hong Kong, just one example, that they move so quickly with, with virtual bank licenses, and that, that is something that Taiwan struggles with. Uh, as we've been discussing, the sandbox, they say it's a success, but maybe not. Where, where are we in, in, in May of 2019 in Taiwan versus some of the other markets on this kind of innovation? implementation of blockchain, uh, use of cryptocurrencies, ICOs. Blockchain, fintech, et cetera. I mean, if you look in, in, in Asia, there's a, there's a big competition between Singapore and Hong Kong, right? Who's going to be more innovative? Um, uh, Thailand is, is catching up quite, uh, quite quickly. Um, and you see other countries like uh, Japan or, or Korea, they're doing their own projects. Japan's done something with the ECB. Korea does some sort of internal projects. But it really... No, Taiwan is, is, is definitely not on the map yet. Um, you know. so, sorry to interrupt you. Well, why is that? Because uh, besides the regulations, we generally think of uh, the, the public in Taiwan, very tech savvy, right? And people are great with software here. They're great with, of course, hardware is manufactured here. So, so the, the backbone, you know, a, a large part of the ecosystem exists in Taiwan, one would think. The, the, the backbone, the hardware's there, absolutely right, and and the the expertise on hardware. But you have to look at also governments in different countries are different, right? MAS is one authority, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and they can decide everything, right? They have budget and they can pay for investment. They can pay for companies to come and move there. Right, so that that's something that, that, but it's a one entity. So there's not different government uh, government um, organizations competing or comp- have 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 different thoughts. Hong Kong is a little bit is a little bit different. HKMA and you have other um, FSC of other um, you uh, other divisions of government. So it's a little bit harder. But again, they are trying to compete, and and I think they get support from from China. Hong Kong is at that uh, that portal for China to be international. I mean, Taiwan, we have a, a democratic uh, society here. We have, you say the public is, is very tech savvy, but also Taiwan, you know, the, the public also has opinions, right? And, and uh, you know, there, I think a, a lot of decisions, you know, it's, it's hard to make a decision if you're worried about being criticized in the media, 
right? So I think there, there's always that challenge in, in Taiwan to make a, you know, we're going to go ahead with this and, and, and just take that, take that jump and take that risk um, because you're afraid of the next election, right? So that's always a challenge in Taiwan. Ching Yuan. I think the other question, a problem, is the mentality of the FSC. You know, uh, I used to serve as a supervisor for a company uh, of a it's, a it's a payment company. You know, before they were subject to the supervision of the FSC, they were really moving fast. Whenever they had an idea, they just implemented it. So they were the leaders even in Southeast Asia. You know, so they they com- consider themselves as you know the front runners. But after a law was passed, they were suddenly under the supervision of the FSC. Whenever they have a new idea. In the past, they can just do it. Now they're like, why don't we just call FSC to see whether we can do this? Then FSC would say, okay, why don't you send your proposal for us? We'll take a look and we'll get back to you. Then that's two months later. In the past, they can have like six projects launching together. Now it's like, okay, one at a time. We don't have all the time for just for you. So you have six problems. You have six projects good then send them after this project is approved you can do the next so that really slowed down the whole thing i think that the mentality of the fsc if it's not changed then taiwan will never you know be a front runner or on the map of this you know a sandboxing it it is interesting it's it's a shame because if you look at uh, being in in banking from taiwan for for 20 some years i mean a lot of the uh the custody practice and, and how custodian banks work. A lot of those regulations, actually, when I when I was working in, in China and Korea, they took what we built in Taiwan as an example for building their markets. Right? We built it about, I guess, it was about twenty years ago, and and uh, you know how it was set up. They looked to Taiwan as a leader in in that area. And, and Taiwan is definitely, it, we're looking to see what other countries are doing. So we're, we're not taking the lead anymore. So, Ching Yuan, before we leave this segment, do, do you recommend your clients go into the sandbox and play around in there? <laughs> uh, if they really worry about, they're, if they really worry about the, the uh, legal issues and they think that they have a very high risk uh, of breaching the law, then we will say yes. Otherwise, we will say, you know, just go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and before we go, this week in Tainan, Clifford the Big Red Dog made his first appearance as the mascot for Tainan's annual children's English reading promotion campaign. While former Tainan mayor and current presidential candidate William Lai tried to make English the official second language in Tainan, as well as nationally after he became premier, it remains to be seen whether the new mayor, Huang Weizhe, can successfully maintain this program. This week, while appearing with Clifford and the students, Mayor Huang spoke mostly in Mandarin, not English. So, Ching Yuan, you served in, in city government. Can Clifford the Big Red Dog help children become better English speakers? I don't think so. And I also think it's really, uh, you know, to make English the second official language is a whole set of things. You know, it's not really just teaching English in schools or like make the mascot. You have to translate everything into English, the law, the regulations, any announcement. I don't think any government in Taiwan is ready. Yeah. Carl, for international business executives, companies doing business in Taiwan, English language ability of Taiwan's talent pool is is an ongoing issue. Uh, uh, The 2019 Taiwan Business Climate Survey, there were respondents who said that staff fail to have good English skills and younger people increasingly don't have sufficient English skills. Is municipal level English language programs the solution? Should city governments be, be taking this issue over? I don't know if they should be taking it over. I think that, that anything, anything to support 
you know, more kids learning English earlier is a good thing. Um, I think that, you know, this, the, the, the more they, again, ICRT, listen to ICRT, they, they, you know, reading books, you know, having more, the more exposure they have, the better, right? I think, and, and hopefully they see um, that having English is, gives them more opportunities um, for international business, not just here in Taiwan, but to, but to go abroad. Um, I, I saw that, uh, you know, Clifford the dog, and, and I thought, well, you know, is it a good or bad thing? Well, I used to read to my kids from Clifford the dog, and they learned English <laughs> from that, so maybe not too bad. Maybe it's not the focus, you know, not the only way to learn English, but, uh, you know, the, reading Clifford the dog is, is another way of, of, of getting kids to, uh, to, to enjoy English. Well, as we say in English, uh, the show uh, might be going to the dogs. So before it really does, uh, we'll leave it there on Taiwan This Week. I've been joined in the studio tonight by the managing partner of Titan Attorneys Outlaw, Ye Qingyuan. Qingyuan, good night. Good night. And Carl Wagner, head of Asia for blockchain software firm R3. Good night, Carl. Good night. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Ross Darrell Feingold, sitting in for Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.